You're listening to Her Brilliant Health Radio, episode number seven. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to Her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. It's Dr. Kieran, and we're here for another episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Today, please help me welcome my guest, Dr. Heather Paulson. Dr. Heather Paulson is a board-certified naturopathic oncologist, teacher, best-selling author, and speaker. After experiencing cancer with loved ones, Dr. Paulson left her marine biology career for medical school. Dr. Paulson works with people undergoing cancer treatment of radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, and helps them integrate natural remedies to reduce side effects and risk of recurrence. She also works with cancer survivors, allowing them to discover their zest for life, to feel like themselves again. Dr. Paulson is the best-selling author of the book Cancer Proof, Seven Natural Ways to Live Cancer Free. Welcome, Dr. Heather Paulson. Welcome, Dr. Paulson. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to share this information about cancer and cancer prevention with everybody listening today. Yes, very excited to have you because cancer is something that everybody wants to know about. And I think that most people know that they can reduce their risk and prevent cancer, but they just don't know what to do. And so I'm really excited to have you on the podcast so we can help women have brilliant health, which means not cancer uh, and avoiding it. So we will get into that. But first, I'd love for you to tell everyone how you became so passionate about treating cancer naturally. Like many of you listening today, I have had a personal story with cancer. And it first um, struck my dad, who was diagnosed with colon cancer when I was in undergrad studying marine biology. And during that time, I ended up splitting my time between the marine biology library and reading the research there and the medical library and reading information on my dad's colon cancer and different things that could be done. Like many other people, we were confused as a family as in terms of what could we really do when we talk about prevention or reducing risk of recurrence. There was this desire to say, okay, there should be something we could do with our diet. There should be something we could do with natural medicine to prevent cancer from coming back. But every time my dad asked his oncologist about this, they said, oh, just eat whatever you want, do whatever you want. And we know now that that's, um, there's so much data on diet and reducing risk of colon cancer re recurrence um, that I don't think his oncologist would say the same things today, but this was almost um, 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago that this conversation was happening. And uh, we, we felt lost, we felt confused as a family. And it was in my last year of undergrad that 
my dad's cancer had returned for the fifth and final time. He uh, was able to come to my graduation, which was a huge life milestone that he was aiming for. And uh, when I was working for the National Park Service doing habitat restoration is when he died of colon cancer. And I spent a lot of time thinking about cancer and how we pluck it out and it comes back and then we apply weed killer to it, which is like chemotherapy and radiation, and it comes back. And of course, I was in the redwood forest pulling out non-native plant species, thinking about how there's this commonality between cancer cells and non-native plants in the redwood forest. And in cancer cells, we tended to just remove the cancer and not put anything back into the soil of our body. And if you do that in a national park, if you don't change the soil, if you don't change the habitat, then those non-native plants are gonna come right back. And it was amazing to me that this connection has not really, to this day, is still not really well understood in oncology of how we can change our physical soil of our bodies to, to really resist cancer cells regrowing in our system. So I came across this term naturopathic medicine while I was sitting with my dad um, during his, literally his last three days on the planet. And I was like, that's what we've been asking about. That's what we've been looking for. And I shifted my career from becoming a, and being a marine biologist to studying naturopathic oncology. Wonderful. I love to hear the story of how people um, got to their current profession and passion. And I'm sorry about your dad. And I had a similar experience. My father um, passed away from cancer. He had a glioblastoma multiforme. Uh, and I too am passionate about, and I know the people listening, cancer rates now one in two people in their lifetime will get cancer. So if you haven't had it yourself, you probably have a family member or a loved one or a friend who uh, has had cancer. And so it really needs to be in the for forefront of our discussion. And I love how you talked about affecting the soil that is our body. So it, cancer actually occurs in people not infrequently when our, our cells are multiplying and dividing, remember from high school biology, there are errors that are made and it's our immune system that comes behind and corrects those errors or it should. But if our immune systems aren't working properly and the soil is not functioning properly in our body, then cancers are allowed to grow. It's like weeds in the garden. And so I love that you've really focused a lot of your work and your book that you've written and um, what you teach people is about how they can change the soil of their body so that it's inhospitable to cancer and cancer won't grow in them. So I'm sorry for your path that got you here. And I know that we always say in your pain is your purpose. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad that you have this purpose. Absolutely. And the thing that's so fascinating is that sometimes we question 
whether our pain is our purpose, right? And I was in that space of questioning, is this what I was really supposed to do? Maybe I should go back to marine biology. Why am I in medical school? And then my husband got diagnosed with lymphoma and I was like, boom, there's no straying from this path. Like this is this is the path because as you said, one in two people are being impacted by cancer and it's happening at younger and younger ages. But I needed to to learn about naturopathic oncology to shift from a place of fear about cancer into empowerment and knowledge. Because I think when you hear statistics like that, it's easy to be like, oh no, when is the other shoe gonna drop? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I could definitely live from that space. Um, my dad had a genetic familial type of colon cancer and I could definitely live from the space of fear or I can get the knowledge that I need and move forward to this healthy, brilliant, bright life that you're sharing with everybody. And, and, I, and I love that you mentioned about that you your dad had a familial type of colon cancer. So let's get right into that because a lot of people are aware of the genetic component of cancer. And so you talk in your book about some tests they may want to have done, genetic and otherwise, but could you talk a little bit more about specifically what it was that your dad had that was genetic and how people can get tested and what you would recommend? Absolutely. So a lot of times when we think about genetically based tumors, the first thing that comes to mind is breast cancer. A lot of us are familiar with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, and we've seen celebrities get mastectomies because of BRCA1 and 2 mutations, and it's very well talked about in the media. But there's other types of genetic cancers and colon cancer is one of them. So my dad was part of a study at UCLA that helped define what Lynch syndrome was and, and Lynch syndrome genes and exactly how to identify those genes in a broader population of people. So that is um, part of my familial history. But only 5% of cancers are due to familial gene mutations from this kind of inherited cancer risk. So it's important to know that while there are these genes out there and you can get tested, you can, your primary care doctor, your uh, local hospital might have a genetic counselor. So if you have a rich family history of cancer, you can go in and speak with them and see if you're a candidate for these genetic tests or not. Um, but with most tumors, they're not related to our family. They're not genetic in nature, but we have these other gene mutations in our body that we acquire over time or that are passed down to us because our great grandparents smoked. And even though that never affected them, mm -hmm. it affected the genes that are passed down. And for those kinds of genetic mutations, I like to use some over-the-counter kind of testing that you can get now you can get it at CVS and Target um, anywhere. You can get like 23andMe testing or there's other gene tests where a lot of the information on their websites that you get regarding your health is probably not that useful, but you get all this raw data, all this raw information from those. And if you work with the right practitioner, they can help you define some of your genetic mutations and what kind of 
cancer that might put you at risk for. So I look a lot for how people are metabolizing estrogens and if they have any mutations with that, because that can put women at risk for breast cancer. I look at some of the gene mutations for glutathione, um, because some of us don't make glutathione that well, and that puts us at risk for some environmentally influenced kind of cancer. So um, when you're working in a factory and you're saying, why did this person get cancer and this other person didn't, could have something to do with that. And then I also like to look at how people are methylating because we know that these methyl factors, as you had mentioned, is part of the DNA repair. And if we're not repairing DNA properly, then that leads to more and more abnormal cell growth. So that's a way to look at your genes that are connected to cancer, but not connected necessarily to a familial history of cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just want to emphasize a few things that you shared for everybody listening, that although people worry, I think a little <clears throat> exorbitantly about genetic cancer, the majority of cancer occurs in people who have no family history. Mm-hmm. So those people more often have environmental insults that contribute to the cancer. So the, the uh, aspect for people to really get is that a lot of your risk is under your control. So I don't like people to go down that rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, this one had cancer in my family, that one had cancer, I'm going to get cancer. It's typically not that way. The majority of people who get cancer don't have family history, but they have environmental factors. And so we can make it a little actionable for people listening and they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm proactive about my health and I like to know whatever it is to know uh, there is to know so that I can uh, make good choices. Uh, would you suggest that they have a 23andMe done? And, and a second part to that question would be some of these issues that you talked about, like the methylation or the the glutathione, like the GST and some of these testing, can they get that at their regular doctor? And if not, where can they go to get this kind of specialized testing? So long question, I want people to know what they can do. Yeah, so like I said, you can get this information from something like 23andMe, but it's not obvious in their website. If you're just reading your health data on their website, you have to download your raw data. And if you just Google 23andMe raw data on their own website in their help section, Mm -hmm. they have information on how you can access this information. For the most part, your regular physician is not looking at this kind of information and is not ordering it. Sometimes if you work with a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor, they have some test kits that they can send you that might give a little bit more information on what you're processing and how your genes are working. Um, that's a might be a little bit more valuable than 23andMe. But overall, um, for, my, for the ease of, of use for my patients, I say just go to the drugstore, pick up the 23andMe test and send it in and we'll discern what's happening in the raw data. So there's websites that help you transfer that raw data into usable information. Mm-hmm. And that there's thousands of genes that are tested in that test kit. Okay, great. 
And let's talk about the part that we have control over because we don't have any control over our genes that we inherited from our parents, but we have so much control over our environmental inputs that influence mm -hmm. So what would you say is the number one environmental input that people should focus on if they're trying to prevent cancer? There's a couple of things that have been looked at because when we say cancer prevention can reduce your risk of cancer, there's some studies that cite that upwards of 70% of cancers can be prevented through the right lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. And the main lifestyle changes that have been studied in the research are to make sure you're not smoking. So that's um, sometimes easier said than done. But hopefully if you're listening to the show, um, you're not smoking or you have some motivation to create and participate in a smoking cessation program mm -hmm. to make sure that you're a normal body weight as much as possible. And then studies have also shown as long as you're not gaining weight, um, that's also preventative against cancer. So you're not gaining any new weight. So if you're looking in the mirror and you're feeling like, oh, there's no way I'm going to hit that ideal optimal BMI, as long as you're not gaining new weight, that's really important. And then um, exercise. Exercising has been shown to be one of the main things that can help prevent cancer. And they recommend in the research about 150 to 170 minutes per week. And that can be done um, as long of an exercise session or as short of a session as you'd like. It doesn't matter as long as you hit that benchmark of 150 to 170 minutes per week. So if you're a weekend warrior, that works. If you do short little bursts, like 15 minutes twice a day, that works. Just whatever fits into your schedule for movement is what's, what's really, really important. And when we talk about cancer cells um, being able to seed and grow in new places. What I love about exercise is that when your heart rate goes up and you pump your blood through your little straws of blood vessels, it actually breaks up any circulating tumor cells. Because you've probably heard that we're all making cancer cells all of the time and our body is able to get rid of these cancer cells. And one of the things that's being looked at in terms of why exercise is so effective for reducing risk of cancer to begin with or reducing risk of cancer coming back is what, what is happening with exercise? How is it working? And of course it's changing some of our hormones, but it's also this like pulse of force through our blood vessels um, actually causes cancer cells to, to break up and die off which I think is an, a great thing to visualize while I'm like jumping on my trampoline. <laughs> yes, that is a great thing to visualize. And uh, that's interesting that it doesn't matter how, what the distribution is of the activity. Um, I do want to just make sure everybody listening is aware that that's for cancer prevention, not necessarily cardiovascular status improvement or for weight maintenance or some of the other health benefits of exercise. So if you want to get the cancer preventative benefits as well as the other health benefits of exercise, you may want to distribute that more evenly throughout the week rather than just on the weekend. Um, and I do want to also clarify, so it, in the studies, it was aerobic type exercise, so heart rate in a certain zone for that period of time. was Isn't that correct? Actually, it's 
um, I have a chapter on exercise in my book, Cancer Proof, but there was all kinds of different exercise looked at because I thought when I first started reading some of the studies on exercise and cancer over a decade ago, I thought, yeah, it had to be probably this aerobic type of exercise, high heart rate, but the studies have looked at actually weightlifting and weightlifting reducing um, cancer growth. Mm -hmm. So also doing HIIT exercises, so the high intensity um, exercises where you do interval training. Right. And also ballroom dancing and yoga. So you get to pick what what feeds you and what you're drawn to. Even triathlons were studied to look at um, reducing risk of recurrence in women who did triathlons after their breast cancer. So it really, it really doesn't matter. You could go for a hike, you can walk on a treadmill, you can walk around the block, you can run a half marathon. It's really up to you. You can take a relaxing yoga class. Any of it for cancer prevention purposes will um, reduce your risk of cancer. Wonderful. So just get moving is the take home. Get moving however you like to move, move. Um, and then how about diet? What can you do with your diet? There's a lot that we can do in terms of our food and using food as medicine. Because I do like us to move away from food as just something that we reach for mindlessly and really think of how it's truly one of the vehicles of medicine into our body. And if we're eating the right foods, we can usually get what we need and reduce some of our supplements and reduce some of the things that we take outside of in capsule form. But the things that have been looked at in food are a couple of things. One is reducing saturated fats, which I know is uh, really against like maybe the ketogenic diet or um, people who are eating high fat diets, but saturated fat in large community epidemiology studies have shown to increase risk of cancer, increase risk of breast, colon, pancreatic, prostate cancer. So all of the most common tumor types really get fed by saturated fats. However, plant fats don't tend to increase risk of cancer. So if you're gonna focus on eating a high fat diet, um, you wanna make sure you're focusing more on plant fats than animal fats. So uh, one of my friends took a picture of, she's like more ketogenic and she took a picture of her salad with butter on top. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's one way to eat. Um, but like you said, I have like blinders on. My life is really about cancer prevention. And so that might be good for some other type of health condition. Right, right. <laughs> And my blinders are on cancer prevention. And I was just like, oh, that's a lot of saturated fat and that increases risk of cancer. So, so anything that I'm saying about diet is really um, focused on cancer prevention and might, may or may not apply to you listening today, but definitely discuss it with your healthcare team. Um, so saturated fats, <laughs> that's part of it. And then eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. A lot of times people hear that sugar feeds cancer and they get kind of stressed out by that, mm -hmm. especially when you're already eating a low sugar diet and you might be craving some fruits. And so they come to me and they say, can I eat fruit? Can I eat honey? Can I do this? Can I do that? And the research studies show that you can eat fruit and as, you can eat as much 
fruit and vegetables in combination as you'd like. And the studies are really on fruit and vegetables. So when we say five to nine servings of fruit and vegetables, it includes both. But you don't want to eat too much um, sugar in your diet. So just make sure you're working with somebody that's checking your blood sugar levels. If you are eating a lot of fruit, you want to make sure that's not impacting your blood glucose or insulin levels. Um, but overall, you should be fine with eating fruit and vegetables. And that just adds a lot of polyphenols, a lot of chemicals that help you metabolize your hormones better and help um, block tumor growth. So there's a lot of chemicals in there that we could uh, kind of get nerdy about, <laughs> but I'll, uh, let us see if we go in that direction. And then I also like to encourage um, my patients to get things that are rich in fiber. So studies show that eating 30 to 40 grams of fiber per day reduces risk of many types of cancer, including breast cancer and colon cancer. And uh, if you've read your fiber labels on your products that you're eating, you might be surprised at how little fiber you're getting per day. Uh, even a cup of beans, because I, I kind of when I um, first heard the study, they actually, when they increased it to 40 grams, and I heard a researcher speak at a conference and he said he likes around 60 grams. I was like, oh my gosh, how is anybody going to eat? that much fiber in their diet. And I started flipping my nutritional labels and reading everything to see how much fiber it had. Um, and so your best sources of fiber are eating beans, um, eating whole grains, and eating more fibrous vegetables like um, broccoli is really high in fiber. <laughs> um, so those are some of the things to focus on that are pretty simple in your diet. Just increase your fiber, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, um, and veer towards uh, less animal fats and more vegetable-based fats. Great. These are wonderful, actionable tips. So saturated fat is animal fat. And so with the advent of butter coffee, why not butter on salad? I mean, some of those creamy dressings are really just butter. So just put the butter on the salad, right? Um, and so I, I agree with you, though, that the animal, the saturated fat, decreasing that. So your healthy fats are going to be your avocado, your nuts and your seeds, things like that. Those are, those are your healthy fats. And um, the fiber, um, I think I read somewhere that the average American gets um, less than 20 grams of fiber a day, but really you need to be way up high and some even say 60. And some people will need to take a fiber supplement to get up that high, but it's important because um, it kind of has this, this cleansing effect in the colon. Um, and a lot of the uh, items that we detox in our body, particularly our hormones, are detoxed through the liver into the gastrointestinal tract. And if they don't have the fiber to bind them in there and hold them in there till they go out in the toilet, then you actually reabsorb them. And you can get these very high levels of these toxic hormones. So just wanting people to kind of have an idea of why these things are important and not just because I told you so, but because this is how the body works. And so we want to get that stuff out. So fiber, healthy fats, and, and the sugar, I do just want to help people visualize that. Um, 
And your doctor can, your regular doctor can easily check your hemoglobin A1C, your fasting glucose level, your fasting insulin, and compare them to quote unquote normal, which I talk about in a video, um, the difference between optimal and normal. So they may tell you your sugar's okay, and it might be actually not quite optimal, but it can be normal. So just for people watching, you want your fasting glucose to be less than 85 to be optimal and your A1C to be less than five or 5.2 and your insulin to be eight or less. So just so you know, you have a ballpark, that's your goal. Um, so these are all great tips for diet. So what are some other things that people can do to prevent cancer in their lives. The other thing that I think is really important and probably under discussed is adding meaning to your life and having meaningful practices, whether they be going to church or meditation or volunteering. These kinds of practices have been shown to improve longevity with or without cancer. So just um, people who have these kind of practices, they live longer, they live healthier, they're overall happier. And it's something that's been being researched right now in cancer research in terms of volunteerism and meditation for reducing risk of recurrence if you've already had cancer. So sometimes I just like to look at the reducing risk of recurrence information and say, if it prevents cancer from coming back when you've already had it, then certainly it plays a role in reducing your risk of ever having cancer in the first place. So I, there's so much that meditation does. And I know you love to talk about meditation too. Um, but meditation, it changes your immune system. It can change your hormones. It can help reduce circulating tumor cells possibly. Um, and there's even guided meditations that have been studied for improving surgical outcomes and reducing risk of infection and inflammation with surgery. So there's a lot of ways that we use meditation throughout somebody's journey with cancer, but I think it can be a really powerful tool for cancer prevention as well. Wonderful. So I love what you're sharing is that it's not just about this, what we can see, feel, touch, taste, whatever. It's smell. It has to do with our thoughts. And this is what I love to talk to people about with their weight also. Thoughts are things. They do affect your health, how you feel about your life, your purpose in life, your passion, your relationships, your fulfillment is very important. And just once again, meditation is scientifically proven to help with many health issues, including what Dr. Paulson is talking about. So it's not some woo-woo thing out there. It's a health tool that if you're not using is actually something you could start today for free and download one of my favorite apps. I'm sure you know it too, the Insight Timer app. Do you mm, know that one? No, I haven't heard of that one. I'll oh, check it out. It's your favorite? Yeah, you'll. it's free in the App Store. It's for um, PCs or Mac phones. And it has a timer on there that you can time your meditation and you can customize it with background music or certain bells at certain intervals. And then they have 
thousands of meditations for free that people have recorded from all over the world that you can listen to at from all walks of life. I mean, it's amazing. And I recommend it to all my patients that I work with. And there's something there for everyone. And uh, it, it's kind of like the meditation department store. I usually start people, I don't know about you, Heather, with meditation, with using guided meditations, because most people can't just sit and clear their mind. They can't stop their thoughts. It's like your heart beating. It always beats. Your thoughts are always thinking and thoughting. Your brain, your mind is always thinking thoughts. So to just tell your brain to stop is almost impossible. So it has to have something to focus on and then the thoughts recede into the background to get into that meditative state. So I tell them use the insight timer and, and, and ladies listening, you can go home and download it and pick some of the meditations that appeal to you. And they have some in sh as short as five minutes in there and they have some that are an hour long. And if you don't like that one, find another one and just keep trying different recorded meditations until you find one that puts you, calms your mind down and stops it from thinking. And you just get into this kind of suspended space is what I call it. Mm -hmm. how, how do you tell your patients to meditate? Well, one of the things I hear a lot is I'm such a bad meditator. I'm sure you hear that too. You'll say, I can't meditate. I'm a bad meditator. And I say, well, why are you, why do you think you're bad at meditating? And they say what, you, what you're talking about, the thoughts, the thoughts just keep coming and I'm not really meditating. I'm just sitting there thinking. I'm thinking about my to-do list. I'm thinking about the mm -hmm. grocery store. I'm thinking about things I left undone at work. I'm just thinking uh, thinking, thinking, thinking. And if you are someone who's tried meditating before and you think you're bad at it, <laughs> the key is to just keep showing up. And like you said, to try different techniques. There's so many different meditation techniques. There's yoga nidra, there's guided meditations, there's sound healing, and you can have the sound waves uh, pass over you or gong meditation. There's active meditation, like walking meditation. So if you can't clear your mind just sitting still, you can do a walking meditation. And there's even guided walking meditations. Mm -hmm. So you can move your physical body and, uh, and get into a meditative state. And then there's just a plain mindfulness practice. And mindfulness you can practice while you're Actually, there's practices specifically while you're eating, while you're washing the dishes, while you're doing laundry, how you fold your laundry, it can become a mindfulness practice. So there's all different ways to experience this peace, this quiet stillness that we all have access to, but we usually let all this other mental and emotional clutter get in the way from accessing that source of peace. Yeah. Yes. I love that you described all those different types. And one thing I heard recently that I hadn't heard before, and I've been meditating for years was you may meditate, but have you achieved meditation? And I loved that because sometimes I'll sit and I practice transcendental meditation for the most part, but I like guided meditations too. And sometimes I'll get to that suspended kind of peaceful place. And sometimes I won't. And I say, well, did I, did I 
get what I was supposed to get out of it, uh, which is those certain brainwave states that are in that suspended space. And I heard someone say, well, did you, you may sit and meditate, but you may not have achieved meditation. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and that person described it as the numb place. Um, but really the, the goal is to get to that. So that suspended thought. So all that, Oh, what do I have to get at the store? What do I have to do today is gone. And it's just kind of, I call it the floaty place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the floaty place. I love when I get to the floaty place. I have a great day when I get to the floaty place. Absolutely. Um, and so what are your personal health practices? I, I think that um, there's so much in the media about what to do for health. It's very confusing for people. And I think that people really appreciate, and they've told me they appreciate hearing we, what we as healthcare practitioners who really walk the walk and care for ourselves in a loving and supportive, proactive way. They love hearing what we do for ourselves. So I'd love for you to share that. Yeah, there's so many different things that I swap out um, throughout my week, throughout the year, depending on what the temperature is. Like right now uh, in Arizona, it's very, very hot and other times it's really cold. So my health practices, my daily health practices change with the seasons. And I think that's something important to notice is, are you changing with the seasons of your life? Are you changing your practices with the seasons of the earth? And um, here right now, the light cycle is is very expansive. It starts getting light at 4 a.m. and it starts getting dark at 8 p.m. So that gives me a lot more time to actually be physically active and to get up and moving where sometimes it's dark for longer periods of time. And I use those times to be more meditative, to slowly stretch and move and do more of like a yin yoga practice. So uh, it really depends on the time of year, what kind of practices I'm doing. But like right now, I just posted a recipe for rose water because rose is very cooling and can help nourish the spleen and the liver according to Chinese medicine. So I'm drinking a little bit of rose water while it's hotter out and I'm making more green juices and more smoothies. And as it gets cooler out, I will switch to using more like golden milk lattes and using turmeric or chai tea, mm-hmm. um, using more warming spices like ginger and cardamom as part of my daily practice. So I like to start my day with something that nourishes myself and takes care of myself. And I wish it was just one thing that I could share with you all, but it really, it really varies. And I encourage you to take a look at your the rhythm of your day and the rhythm of the year and the rhythm of your life and see what your body needs in that moment in that particular rhythm. Does it need more quiet? Does it need more movement? Does it need more warm nourishment, more cool nourishment? And just check in with yourself and see how you can best feed and take care of your body in that moment. 
I love that. And I really think it is important for people to look at uh, changing with the seasons. And I, I think we all like ease and life can be complicated. And so we kind of want to know, well, what do I have to do? And then we want to put it in place and do it forever. But your body is a living organism and it doesn't work that way. What it needs today may not be the same as what it needs in three months. And so I always like to say that health is a journey, not a destination. And so constantly tweaking and, and really being mindful of where am I with my health today? What am I needing today? What is my soul needing? What is my body needing? Um, and what is my mind needing? And, and how do I give it that? And so I know that you're probably this way from my observation, similar to what I am as a practitioner, my goal is to educate people about their own health so that they can navigate the journey on an ongoing basis. And you don't strike me as the kind of doctor either who tells people do this because I said so and do it forever. It's yeah. more <laughs> educating about who they are. And so I want everybody listening to really get that there, there is no one answer. And just because Dr. Heather may do something doesn't mean it's right for you or I may do it doesn't mean it's right for you. So as much as you can educate yourself so that you can navigate. And I loved this, the summit that you did, the science and soul of healing is, can people still access that? They can, and we're going to be redoing it. Um, re, um, we're using some of the same lectures and some new lectures in um, this coming October of 2018. So okay. yeah, I, I love this connection that we're talking about is that there is this awareness outside of ourselves um, and within ourselves where when we have these moments of quiet or when you eat a relatively clean diet, you're, you will be guided towards things that can influence your health that you, that might surprise you. Yes, that, that is so true. And for people listening who may actually be suffering with cancer right now, or they have a loved one who's going through it, maybe they just got a diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about what your process is with someone who has active cancer, how you work with them and what kinds of adjuvant natural treatments you recommend, things like that. Absolutely. So as a naturopathic oncologist, I mostly work in an integrative setting. So I support people's bodies through chemo, radiation, and surgery using natural therapies alongside those conventional treatments to reduce side effects and protect our healthy cells. But also I work with people who are interested in preventing cancer based on a family history or particular environmental exposures. And if you are done with treatments and you're um, now thriving or surviving after cancer, then we look at how to help your body regain health and maintain a life that's cancer free. So that is a little bit about how I work with people. And as a naturopath, we use things like diet. Um, I'm trained in acupuncture. I'm trained in herbs and botanical medicine. We use supplements. I mean, really whatever is considered functional medicine and natural medicine are things that I implement in my practice with people. And then we like to layer on that science and soul healing piece of using energy medicine, meditation. And um, I, I'm a pranic healer and I teach pranic healing. And um, also um, I, I've studied with a Cherokee medicine man and 
done a lot of study into like I'm currently diving into Tibet, into Tibetan medicine. So any kind of traditional healing methods, um, I like to talk about that with my patients who are getting stuck and we're trying to kind of get to the bottom of why they're not experiencing health. Oh, I love that you incorporate so many modalities. And I love that you mentioned pranic healing. Can you talk about, tell people what that is? A lot of people are not familiar with that. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So pranic healing is a type of energy system, energy medicine system that is a no touch energy system and uses prana, which is also known as chi or life force um, to help heal the body. And what I love about pranic healing is that it can be used on yourself. You can use it on somebody else. It can be part of a daily practice for just kind of clearing out your energy body because we have these different layers of ourselves. Um, so a lot of times we focus on our physical body and our muscles and our bones and that part of our physical body. But mm -hmm. there's studies now that confirm we do have an aura. We have this electromagnetic field, this pulse that goes out from our physical body to about four feet to six feet around us. Mm -hmm. And that magnetic field gets shifted by our entire day, what kind of spaces we walked into, what kind of practices we did, what kind of thoughts that we had. Mm -hmm. And pranic healing helps clear that energetic space around your body so that you can um, see more clearly, you can function more peacefully, reduce stress, and experience better health. Wonderful. And so what would be just a quick pranic technique that you could share with everybody that they could do today just to experience what it's like? One thing that I like about pranic healing is they talk a lot about energy hygiene and keeping ourselves clean from our internal and external environment. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you can do to help clear that the aura or that electromagnetic field around your body is to take a salt bath or to use a salt scrub in your shower. And it's recommended to add some essential oils like lavender into that bath or tea tree, depending on what you're hoping to achieve. And that can help, um, as my teacher puts it, it helps scrub the window. So if we think of this electromagnetic field, this aura as our windshield that we're viewing everything through, um, you can view it through a dirty windshield that's just taken a road trip and has a bunch of gunk, dust, and bugs and stuff on it. Um, or you can view it from a nice clean windshield. And we have better perception and better health the cleaner our windshield is, just like we drive more easily when our windshield is clean. So taking a salt bath is just one of the ways to clean that windshield. I love that analogy. It's the, that it's the windshield that we see through. I've never heard that, but that's a beautiful way to describe um, the, the auric field. That's our windshield of life. Mm -hmm. so that's beautiful. Um, I know that you have a gift for everybody that they can go to your website and download. We'll put the link um, below so that they can um, download and it's about living a great cancer-free life, right? 
Yes, it's the five steps that we talked about today, plus, uh, well, we talked about four of the five steps today. So there's a fifth one in there that you can learn more about in terms of thinking green and reducing toxins in your body and in your home. But it's called living a great life because I think that is something that we're all striving for. And it has some recipes and different information in there. And I would just love to connect with you if you are drawn in your heart to learn more about cancer prevention or reducing risk of recurrence, or even um, the science and soul of healing meditation practices and this side of healing your body. I'm really looking forward to connecting with you. Yes, go to Dr. Paulson's website. We'll put the link for the free gift, but definitely connect with her because she's going to be relaunching, like she said, her Science and Soul of Healing Summit, which is an awesome summit uh, in the fall. And so there are lots of great speakers, especially if you're interested in this whole aspect of medicine as not just drugs and surgery, but natural treatments and um, healing more than just the physical, but this kind of auric field and our what I call our energy body. So you can learn more there. So it, the podcast is Her Brilliant Health. And I would love to know before we go, how do you define brilliant health? Mm. When I when you said that, my visualization was just um, light shining from the inside out. So whatever that is, whatever lights you up, um, whether that be physical, spiritual, emotional, that would cause you to be your most brilliant self. I love that. Thank you for that. That is so beautiful. And thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Paulson, Dr. Heather Paulson. Bless you. And thank you for sharing yourself. Thank you for the work that you do in this life. And thank you for all the people that you've helped today with the information that you've shared. Many mm -hmm. blessings. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Hopefully you are inspired to take action on some new information you received today. A step towards the bountiful, blissful, beautiful vitality that you deserve. If you have health topics and questions you'd like addressed, please message me on my Facebook page or visit KieranDunstonMD.com and let me know. I'd love to help. Remember to share this podcast on social media and send it to your friends and family who could benefit from it too. If you love the show, please go right now to iTunes, write a review, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when future episodes are available. Thank you again for joining me. And remember, achieving optimal health isn't magic, it's science.